it's good to be back with you for tonight. And um, it's almost Christmas. <laughs> for some, the chaos can stop. <laughs> for others, it won't. But it is a special time, it's a special season, and I hope during this Christmas time of year, um, you're, you're challenging your heart to just worship. And you can do that in many ways, okay? Many, many, many ways. And I hope to do that tonight and just encouraging you and just reminding you of a few things that we should set our hearts and our minds on during this Christmas season. Amen? Um, pray for me. You know, just, uh, just need the Lord's help today. Got a lot going on. <laughs> I got an assignment due tonight, and I haven't even done it. So it's, it's all good. It's all good. So the Christmas season is filled with joy. It's awesome. Get to hang out with friends. Experience lots of love. Get to eat. Uh, it's a great time of year. I know for me... Uh, at least the Christmas season, we, we had traditions, as many of you guys probably do, do have, and, and celebrate uh, currently. Uh, in our family, we would always read the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we would go to a Christmas Eve service, which is on December 24th every single year. And we would wait till midnight to open up presents. I remember as a kid falling asleep on a Christmas Eve service, asking my dad, when can this be over? <laughs> Just to open my presents. It was so sad, so sad. But my parents were kind and they were gracious. But Christmas traditions, they're important. You know, as, as a 30-year-old man, I look back and I appreciate what my parents instilled in me. Uh, they made sure that we read the Christmas story before we'd even touch a present. Now, the present was not the most important thing, but at least from my, my heart, looking back to, to, during, to, to my childhood, I can see that they were trying to teach me that the story of Christ is more important than anything that I'm about to open. And I need that. I need that um, because I know how my flesh can lead me astray. And it does at times, right? But this time of year, it's awesome. I love it. And I hope many of you guys love it as well. Um... The Christmas season certainly is a great season to end of year, and it's one of my two favorite holidays throughout the calendar year, the other one being Easter. Christmas is big, and many Americans, many of us, we're fans of it. The focus seems to be on gifts, food, family, and friends. And, and how do we respond, right? We respond by sharing and giving gifts, which is a good thing. But listen to this, and I hope, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll understand what I'm trying to do. I'm not casting judgment on anybody. It's just more of a self-reflection and a challenge on your heart, because I need this, okay? According to one site in 2014, Americans spent about $620 billion during the Christmas season. That's crazy. $620 billion. Fast forward to 2019, and guess what? We are on a record Breaking pace has spent over a trillion dollars as a nation this holiday season. A trillion dollars. That's a lot of zeros, I guess. <laughs> the economy is obviously booming right now, and we as Americans are taking advantage of it. Uh, Matthew Shea, 
president of the National Retail Federation, states this, thanks to a healthy economy and a strong consumer confidence, we believe that this holiday season will continue to reflect the growth we've seen over the past year. That's a good thing, right? That's, in one sense, that is a good thing, seeing economic prosperity in our nation. We were thankful for it, but we must be careful, right? Because the almighty dollar can lead us astray in many ways, right? And so I wonder, how, think about this. How do we contribute to this trillion-dollar um, fund for, Christ, for Christmas? Again, according to the NRF, they say that each adult is projected to spend at least $1,000 this, this holiday season. That's a lot of money, but in comparison to a trillion and what we have over 300 million Americans here uh, in, in the U.S., that's a lot. $1,000 for what? Four to six weeks. It can be good. And at times, it can be bad, Right? Now, to be fair, buying gifts and showing love to someone you love, to another person that you love, a family member or a friend, those are good things. But these facts, that they're worth us paying attention to. And in my view, I at least think it's interesting. Because if we're not careful, we'll run into unnecessary stresses during the Christmas season. And we'll miss the point of the holidays or of Christmas. Has anyone ever heard of festive stress? No. Good. In an article with the New York Post, it states festive stress is real and it's here. 31% of Americans describe the holiday season as frantic. The pressure to have the perfect Christmas also takes on a toll on 41% of Americans who confess to working too hard to achieve it. The percentage jumps up to almost half for moms who put even more pressure on themselves. Six out of ten moms say they find it hard to slow down and enjoy the festive season. Now, if that's you, it's okay. But I'm making an appeal to you that maybe there's something we can do to fix that, to to remedy that. So we don't have to be part of, I guess, the norm in American culture when we celebrate Christmas. The article continues, and it shows the top 25 stressors for Americans during the holidays. And I'm not going to name them all, but I'm going to name a few. I'm going to name the top five and and, uh, certain ones that I found just interesting, okay? The top five stressors for Americans in 2019. Number one. Gift shopping. And I asked Molly this about an hour ago, and she said every single one. <laughs> I loved it. So a fact check. You can fact check me too, would, you know, how, if it lines up with you. Number one, gift shopping. Number two, crowds and lines. Oh, my goodness. We went shopping Saturday, and my heart almost exploded. <laughs> I was just like, get me. <laughs> I'm just going to say we had a baby girl, and... It just put us behind. I'm buying gifts. We didn't use Amazon this year. Number three, cleaning, which makes sense. Number four, knowing what to get people. That's me. Um, I'll get you a cup of coffee from Starbucks. <laughs> okay? That's the best thing I can do. I'm not going to buy anybody books or anything. Well, actually, I did get some guys some books, so forgive me. But it's, it's a struggle knowing what to get people, right? And number five, cooking. Um, others worth considering that are stressors, working out how to visit family, family politics, 
finances, hosting other people, and some interesting ones. Uh, some people are, are stressed out because they see other people being too jolly or, or too happy. <laughs> and my favorite, uh, a stressor for an American today is a trying out a new recipe and it turning out bad. <laughs> I've never done it, but I'm sure someone in here has, and you're stressing that first bite that's, that person takes, right? But here's what's interesting. Notice what was not mentioned as a stressor. And if you want to read this article, it's actually a really fun read. You want to check it out, I can send it to you. Um, but stressors that were not mentioned, at least in my view, I'm probably you know, inserting my view into this, were things related to faith. The manger, King Jesus, angels, anything related to the gospel or Christ was not mentioned. And I thought that was really interesting. I even asked Molly, I was like, hey, you know, of all the things mentioned, did you notice that there was nothing listed spiritually? And she's like, okay, that's, that's, that's a good point. What, what, what are you trying to, to say? You know, maybe I'm looking or putting too much of my views into the article, but at least what I want to communicate is that, man, when we focus on the things of God and the things of Christ, it seems like we, we move from a mode of self-worship, if you allow me to use that, because I know it's tricky, into worshiping him. Does that make sense? So I think that there are things that we can do to help us not stress during this Christmas season, but rather encourage us to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords, because that is the goal. That is my goal, and I pray to God that is your goal. Is it okay to show love to a family member or a friend? Absolutely. But I will go a step further and say, if your heart if, if God is challenging your heart to encourage that person to love Jesus more, that is the better route. The Christmas season is not about American economy or consumers like me or you. It's about a king who came down and was born in a manger. We need to fight against the temptation and letting these things, these stressors, replace our joy for something lesser in terms of spirituality. Life is too short to reduce it to a shopping list on Amazon. So what can be a season of joy and laughter, as Michael pointed out earlier in his prayer, can be a season of frustration and pain for many. Some have recently just lost a loved one. Others have learned of an unfortunate diagnosis. The job that you were banking on this Christmas season in years past, unfortunately, is now in jeopardy. It's almost impossible to find joy right now because all you see is pain. So what do you do? How do you respond? And what is the church to do during this season of life? We need to go back and remind ourselves of the real reasons why we celebrate Christmas. And once we've identified them, we, we need to work hard on focusing on these things meditating on these things so that we worship during this season and we're not stressed out. Amen. So if you don't mind, join me in turning to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to read some passages here in Luke. And the title of this sermon is 
You shall call his name Jesus. Five reasons to rejoice this Christmas season. Amen. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, it states this. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will be, and his kingdom there will be no end. And with that in mind, let us pray to our God and ask him to help us tonight. Our Father and our most gracious God, we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, this truth is evident in the sending of your son, Jesus. He is our high priest. He is our king. And Lord, as we've been learning about him and the office that he holds over the past couple of weeks, God, we celebrate the Messiah. And his name is Jesus the Lord, the Christ, the anointed one. And for many of us, Father, we have come to know your son only by the, only, only by the work of your spirit. And I'm calling on you, Lord, to work in our lives and continue to work in our lives and encourage us to love you more, to love you more during this Christmas season than, than one's past. And Father, it, it, it is foolish of me or for us to think that there is someone in here who does not know you. Lord, whether they've been in church for, for 10 years, for 20 years, or even 80 years, Father, if they don't know you tonight, convict their heart and show them who you truly are. Use Luke and his gospel to show them who you truly are and let them see that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God, you deserve to be worshipped with our finances, with our bodies, with our minds, with everything, Lord. Because your, your scriptures tell us the cost of following you is exactly that. Help us, God, to kill off our flesh and to live in the spirit. In the sweet name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So names were powerful in the first century. They were highly important. And for this culture, it's important for them and, and for the families. What, what did names communicate? Names communicated a person's identity. The same is said for the name of Jesus. Taking, uh, instead of taking a family name, what, what was Mary and Joseph commissioned to do? They were told by the angel to name this child specifically Jesus. So we know his name. We know his identity. We know what his name means. And what does Jesus' name mean? It means Yahweh saves. Jesus is the anointed one of God. It's his name, his work, and his gospel that saves. Nothing else. In verses 32 and 33, Stein says, he says this, there, in describing the child, there is a five-fold description of Jesus. And, and let's take notice to, to what they are and how Jesus is described. Yahweh, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves, but he's described in other ways by Luke, and I think he wants us to see that as the reader here. What, what does he say? He says, he will be great, not average, not just good, but great. 
And there's a lot in there, and I don't think I have enough time to unpack that. Number two, he's the son of the most high. God's son, the only one. The unique one, the anointed one. Jesus is the son of the most high. Number three, he will reign on the throne like his father, David. And that's interesting because we know that goes back into the Old Testament where David was promised by God in a covenant intimacy chapter in 2 Samuel 7 that David will forever have a son on the throne. But who is the one that's going to be the Messiah? The story through Samuel and Kings shows us that the, 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 the kings of past, they are all fallible, even the great King David himself. But this son, Jesus, is unique. He too will be like his king. He too will be a king like his father David. And number four, his reign is eternal. Now we don't know what that means. We can describe that the best way that we describe eternity is just forever. <laughs> it never ends. But even our human minds cannot fathom that. But at least the best attempt that we can at least say and describe is that Jesus' reign is forever and ever and ever and ever, and it will never stop. It's amazing. There is no end to his reign. And number five, his kingdom will be forever as well. And we learned a little bit about the kingdom this morning, didn't we? We learned that as people in the covenant community of God through Jesus Christ, we are, we are ushered into the kingdom of God through the Son. And that means we have fellowship with God in his kingdom by his terms. And his kingdom is unlike any kingdom in this world. It is vastly different. It is one born out of blood and given to the saints through faith. Remember, Luke is a careful historian. He, he gets the majority of his facts from, from sources, maybe the other gospels, or from firsthand reports. And he wants us as the readers to understand fully who is this child. He wants us to understand who he is and how we are to view him. I mean, compare this story to Matthew 1, verses 21 and 23. Listen to what Matthew says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, Yahweh, he will save Jesus' name, his people, from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, that's part of this is in Luke's story, but not everything, right? Luke's approach then is different, not in terms that that's in conflict or in contradiction, but Luke is different because of the information he wants to give to us that he got from Mary. And this is all part of how Luke writes his gospel. This is his style, and this is what he wants to communicate to us. He wants us to see specific things about this child that will penetrate our hearts. Luke wants you to know who the child is, what makes you unique, and how you are to view him. Ezekiel 37, my servant David shall be king over them. 
And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob where their fathers live. They and their children, their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. It's interesting. Ezekiel knows David is long dead and gone. Verse 26, continue, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It, will be, it, will, it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, people, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end on the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And a reminder of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Is it Solomon? We know it's not. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Not, not fully. At least we're teased that, right? He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Man, this child is precious. Jesus is precious. He is different. He is unique. And Luke wants us to recognize that, to challenge our hearts to see who he is so that the result is that you fall down on your knees and you worship him. And it's interesting. I think this five-fold approach by Luke is, it will be fleshed out in the rest of this gospel so that the names and the descriptions and the identity of Jesus Christ will be clear. You will know who he is by the time you're at the end of chapter 24. The hope is that through the Holy Spirit, you'll come to know the great son of the most high who reigns upon David's throne and his reign will be forever just like his kingdom. Therefore, Jesus is the reason for the Christmas season. And I want to present to you five reasons why we need to focus on him. And not much so the things that we are focusing on in this world. Amen? So challenge your hearts. Reason number one, Jesus is the promised king. We're reminded of this again this morning. Jesus is the promised king, and he became flesh over 2,000 years ago. We're no longer looking or waiting for the Messiah. He is already here. He's already finished his mission. And because of that, you can live with him and in his kingdom right here, right now. I know we have the already but not yet principle, and that does apply. But man, the Messiah is here. And this is why we come to church. We believe this. We proclaim this. And we tell a lost and dying world that Jesus is king. Amen. 
And notice in Luke's gospel, how does Jesus' life start out? It starts out with a humble beginning. Instead of being pronounced as king at his birth, only a few people were present. It was not announced to the whole city, to the region, that Jesus was born. It was not announced that he was a king or anything related. Rather, the king of kings was born in what? A humble manger. It shows us, Luke shows us, and he, and he reminds that the promised king, that the Messiah is a humble one. He was born in a manger. That's not typical of a king of Jesus' status. But yet, God chose for him to enter into the story in this specific way. He comes into the world and he's born in a manger, or he's placed in a manger. And on his way in exiting this world, what happens? He's on a cross. And before he leaves this world, he is pronounced as a king of kings. The gospel writers want us to see that. They want us to see that. They want us to see that this promised king is unlike anybody else in the past. The kingship of this son will now prove and be gifted by God to show us in this world that he is the king of kings. But all, all Jesus must do is, is simply do what? He must simply obey the Father and carry out every single one of his tasks that the Father has given to him. And that, again, will prove that he is the son of God, the king of kings. And what does Jesus do? He does that. Jesus faithfully does it. He proves to us and to everyone during that time that he is an obedient son. He is the promised king. He lives according to the law of God. He's not as the the, the previous kings in the past who prove by their life and by their decisions that they are unworthy kings. Kings in the past, what do, they, what do they do? What do they show us? They show us they are greedy for power. They're greedy for prestige and they're greedy for themselves. Worldly kings seek after things for themselves. And this has been consistent between monarch after monarch after monarch after monarch. They all are flawed except one. And the law tells us what a good king is supposed to do. In Deuteronomy 17, this is a picture of what a faithful and true king is supposed to do. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, notice this, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. That's interesting. It's like this king is taking a test before the holy ones in the camp of Israel, and he's writing down every single word of God, being approved by the priests. The priests are overlooking. And this intimacy here, this, this is signifying the seriousness of this king's rule. He's taking the word of God before Levitical priests, and he's writing it in a book for himself. Verse 19, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. 
that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may turn aside, may not turn aside from the commandment, either to his right hand or to his left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. He and his children is, or is he and his children in Israel. This is a picture of a good and righteous king. This king here is a man of the book. He knows the book. He keeps the book. He speaks the book. He loves the book. And then by doing so, he is showing to the world that he prefers God's laws versus the world's. And Jesus does that. Jesus is the very representative of God, and he shows us what is a true king look what, what does a true king look like? He loves the word of God. But what about the king? How does he rule? Luke gives us some hints of how, or gives us some snapshots in how Luke or in how Jesus rules. Jesus obeys the law of God. He doesn't fall into temptation. And his gospel is so powerful that it reaches to all the corners of the earth or is starting to reach all the corners of the earth in Luke's gospel. It penetrates every background. And it changes. And it even changes the hearts of wicked Gentiles. If you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, Luke's gospel tells us that you can enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus' rule is so different and unique. Another thing, the promised king, Jesus, is a man of prayer. He loves the word of God. He's faithful to the word. And he's in an intimate relationship with God through prayer. Before any major event in Luke's gospel, what do we see from Jesus? He enters into a season of prayer. The promised king doesn't go to battle without first consulting his father. He trusts his father above all things, and he turns to him on the most important things in his life. Rather, he trusts him with everything in his life, even the most important ones. And the last thing about this king, this king is the resurrected Messiah. He's the one who will go to the cross. He will defeat sin. He would defeat the Satan, and he would be vindicated in the end as the true anointed one. The king of the Jews is indeed king, but he's also king of a redeemed sinners, or of redeemed sinners. This guy is unique. His rule and his reign expands to all generations, to all people groups, and his people do respond. Reason number one. The promised king. Number two, Jesus is the Messiah of the world. This is the second reason for us to focus on Christ this season. While we were off living our lives in the flesh, destined for hell in this, in this lost and dying world, what did God do? God's plan of a salvation unfolds through his son. Jesus, Yahweh says, is the reality of this plan taking place. The Savior of the world. No longer will the focus be on just one ethnic group, but all. And when that hits home, Christian or saint, it will make you worship. Gentiles were not worthy, Gentiles were 
defined as sinners. There was no way for them to have access to God. But Jesus breaks this. He breaks the old covenant. He issues in the new. And he shows that God's kingdom is going to expand every single ethnic group in this world. So that your background, your tribe, your tongue, when you hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ, you can experience salvation and healing. That's through Jesus and his name. And Luke knows this. Luke knows this. And what's interesting about this gospel in comparison to the other gospel is that Luke is the most diverse in terms of character selection. He's specific and selective in taking specific people in his story and inserting them in his gospel for us to read and study about. The Savior's encounter with people is so unique and diverse. And Bill Cook says this, this is because of Jesus' love for people. Jesus' love for people is so expansive. And we're seeing that in this gospel. The promised king is not ashamed of anyone from any background. And this means there is hope for you. And man, there is hope for me. Jesus' story can be your story of deliverance. And you can take joy in this, Christian. You can take joy in knowing fully that Jesus does love you. His gospel is proof of that. His life is proof of that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have made the prophecy a reality so that you don't have to question that Jesus doesn't love you. You can know confidently that the King of Kings does love you. And you look at the cross and you see that clearly. Think of the characters in Luke's gospel. There are some wicked people listed. But notice, notice their stories. They are intended for us to have hope. They are intended for us to see the marvelous saving power of this Christ. Name a background, and you can somewhat see it in this gospel. An enemy of another nation, saved by Christ. A prostitute, Saved by Christ. A culturally hated Samaritan, saved by Christ and a picture of saving grace. A corrupted banker, chosen and saved by Christ. A corrupted criminal, dying on the cross, saved by Christ. And lastly, a Jewish, a righteous Jewish man by the name of Joseph, saved by Christ. These characters are the introduction to the wide spectrum of the powerful gospel that changes and saves lives. And this gospel is powerful. Because when you hear it, sinner, something happens. When the Spirit is working in your heart, something happens. And it truly pierces your soul. So that your background, the sin that you've committed, whatever context you've been in, doesn't matter when you stand before Christ. He can and he will make you whole. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And what's beautiful is we saw a picture of that this morning, didn't we? I love the picture of baptism. And I'm praying that we will catch fire and the gospel will continue to go out. And, man, we will see more come to faith in Christ. And we can pronounce to this, com- this community the kingdom of darkness does not reign. Amen. 
One person's life was, was saved, and we saw a picture of that. The transformation that took place in this girl's life is real. There is hope, Christian. There is, there is hope in Christ that you, you, there is no place that you can be so far from God. Denise didn't share everything about her story, but I am encouraging you, church, ask her. Learn what Christ has done and taken her out of. The domain of darkness is no longer on her life. And the picture of baptism gives us a picture of eternal life with Jesus Christ because he is the savior of the world. Number three, Jesus reverses the curse of sin. Ever since Adam fell in the garden, the problem of sin has been clear and evident. We see it today. Death remains, and there is still a natural decay on this earth and unfortunately over our bodies. Romans Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Sin is the opposite of life. Sin bounds a person into thinking that life is found outside of the law of God. Sin is the opposite of freedom. In the first century, many believed that if one had a disability, it was, mostly, it was most likely because that this person committed a sin. The third reason to focus on Jesus is that he reverses the curse of sin. And instead, Jesus issues new life. Luke helps us see this in how Jesus heals and brings life into dark situations. Take the, take the disease of leprosy, something that was highly contagious and was a picture of sin, at least we see in the law. Jesus encounters leprosy and the curse of the sin, and he does what to a, to a specific individual in the story? He heals the poor leper, and he even touches him. And what happens to, disease, to the disease? The disease goes away and Jesus restores his body physically and also want to argue spiritually. There's a two-fold restoration in this leper. He has seen the Messiah and he's called him as Lord and he has experienced physical healing and spiritual healing. Jesus reverses the curse of sin. The same is for the crippled woman. And a blind beggar. The problem of sin is evident. They are broken. Their body is being beaten by sin. But once Jesus enters the scene, these people experience something they have never, ever felt before. Their disability is healed and their faith is given to them by Christ. It is renewed. They have seen the Messiah. And he has touched them. And he has healed them. And he has shown them that the power of sin is no longer on their bodies. Go out, live by faith, trust in me, continue to live out in my faith. Live in my kingdom. When Jesus reverses the curse of sin or or when Luke gives us these these examples, these are signs of what's to come. Jesus is God. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus has power over the curse of sin and death in this world. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, not death. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
The greatest symbol that Jesus has reversed the curse of sin is right behind me, Christian. It is the cross. When Jesus was suffering and suffering for my sin and for your sin, he was dying and he eventually died. But what took place three days after his death? The greatest miracle ever to take place in human history. Sin, death could not defeat the Messiah, the promised one. And God the Father looked upon his life and resurrected him from the grave, solidifying that he is the promised one. He is the Messiah. And through his life, through his kingship, through his rule and reign, sin has been defeated. And man, that gives me hope. That should give you hope to know that sin shall not reign in your body. You can defeat it. Through the hope and power of the Holy Spirit, you can defeat this sin. But Christian, you got to keep fighting. You have to keep fighting. You can't continue to live in the, in the, uh, the mirage that, that sin gives you of life. There is no life in entertaining your, your lusts or your desires. There is only death. So we seek after Christ because John tells us he is the bread of life. If you are hungry, Go after him. Reason number four, Jesus is peace. Jesus is the personification of the peace of God. And we see this clearly in the first couple chapters of Luke. We see it in Zechariah's spirit-filled prophecy. We see it in the announcement of the angels, and we see it in the send off of Simeon. In the first two chapters, peace is mentioned at least three times, signifying its importance, but signifying that this is an important theme for Luke. The peace that Jesus brings to us is one of reconciliation back to the Father. Did you know that because of sin, it means that we are separated or we are at odds before God? But there is hope because of Jesus. Spurgeon says this, what is the peace of God? I would describe it first by saying it is, of course, peace with God. Peace of conscience. Actual peace with the Most High through the atoning sacrifice. Reconciliation, forgiveness, restoration to favor there must be, and the soul must be aware of it. There can be no peace of God apart from justification through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith. Precious, precious words by this dear brother. A man of conscience of being guilty can never know the peace of God till he becomes equally, equally conscious of being forgiven. When his consciousness of pardon shall become as strong and as vivid as his consciousness of guilt, then he will enter into enjoyment of the peace of God, which passes all understanding. You know who understands that? Every Christian. You know who really understood that? The Apostle Paul. And he wrote magnificent letters for the church to enjoy and for the church to proclaim. Have you ever been in a place where sin has just defeated you? You can't sleep. You can't eat. You're like David and your bones are wasting away. There's hope, Christian. There's hope that the peace of God can enter into your heart. All you have to do is turn to Psalms 51 and pray like David and ask God to create in your heart the spirit, the, the, the forgiveness, the, 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 
the power of repentance. God alone can do it, and you must ask him to do it. Experience this peace and understand the joy that comes from knowing God has made, or Jesus has made you right with God. That is the peace that helps us live out this life day to day to day. And the last reason, Jesus is hope. Luke 24, 21. But we had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And there were some who doubted. There were some that didn't believe that this Messiah could be resurrected from the grave because that was not normal. But God did a work. Jesus did a work that only he could accomplish. And he is the hope that we have. He is the hope for Israel. He's the hope for the Gentiles. He is hope for me and for you. And he was indeed resurrected on the third day so that in a couple of months, when we, re- when we celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Christ, it is true. It is true, Christian. And our blessed hope is in Christ and in nothing else. Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus reverses the curse of sin. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our hope. And during this Christmas season, we need to meditate on this. Now, faith is assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. We serve a risen Lord and a risen Savior. And this Christmas season is one that's supposed to be about him. It's one that's supposed to be about his work, about his life, about what he's done for you. And so as you are interacting with your friends and families and coworkers, if you can engage with them in pointing them to Christ, I think that is worth the conversation. I think that is worth the attention. I think that is celebrating the Christmas season. You sing a new song, Christian. You you run to a different pace. When you understand that Christ is your Lord and Savior, a transformation happens. And you are in love with the King of Kings. And so how do you celebrate this Christmas? And what are some things that we can do? We focus on the work of the Messiah, and we celebrate him. Let's pray. Our Father and our most gracious God, we love you because you first loved us. And Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his gospel because his gospel is the gospel of peace. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.